The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. This morning's message will be based on Matthew 6, 9. For context, I'll be reading Matthew 6, 7 through 13. It says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, O Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Robert. Let's pray together. Father, we are gathered around this text of scripture today because we want to hear from you. And... We want to hear from you because we want to know you more and love you more and be more conformed to your image. And so please bless our efforts and glorify your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This morning, I will be sharing the second of three messages on prayer as a part of our emphasis on prayer for the new year. Uh, Last Sunday, we looked at the power of prayer. This morning, we'll be exploring the posture of prayer. And next Sunday, we'll be learning about the practice of prayer. A theologian named A.W. Tozer once said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I believe that general statement is especially true when it comes to prayer. The way we view God determines the way we approach God in prayer. And one time a friend of mine uh, tried to send a text message to his fiancée Uh, However, instead of sending it to his fiancée, he accidentally sent it to another woman that he knew that was in his phone. And let me just say that uh, he wrote something in this text message that he definitely would not have written intentionally uh, to this other woman. Uh, Needless to say, uh, my friend was very embarrassed. Uh, Thankfully, they eventually did get the situation straightened out. But uh, at first, this woman was very confused by that message. And so we relate to people differently depending on who we perceive them to be. And the same holds true with God. The way we relate to God and approach God and experience God in prayer is inseparably tied to who we believe God to be. And so When you pray, how are you viewing God? I think sometimes we approach God as if he were a strict boss 
in the workplace who's not overly inclined to help us unless we can figure out a way to convince him to do so. Or maybe we view him as a distant deity who's more concerned about other things that are going on in the vast universe he governs than he is about us. And therefore, it's just a bit on the reluctant side to hear our prayers. So there are a lot of different views that we can have about God that fall tragically short of what the Bible reveals about it. And for those here who find prayer to be a struggle, maybe this is a key reason why you struggle. Like maybe the way you view God and the fundamental assumptions you're making about God just aren't biblical and are throwing everything else off as you try to pray. And so this morning, our focus will be on the posture of prayer. And by that, I mean, what mentality should we have as we approach God in prayer? How should we view him and relate to him? And thankfully, we don't have to wonder about that because Jesus tells us pretty clearly how to approach God in Matthew 6, 9. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So Jesus tells us to approach God, not as some distant deity who's relatively indifferent about our welfare, but rather as a father. And since we know that there aren't any deficiencies in God, then we understand that God isn't just any father, but rather the ideal father who loves us perfectly, cares for us immensely, and is sympathetic to us in the midst of our struggles. Although it's not uncommon to have an earthly father who leaves much to be desired, we can approach God in prayer as a father who's perfect in every way. And this leads us to pray much differently than those who aren't Christians and and who don't have this mentality. We can see the difference if we back up to the two verses that precede the verse we just read. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, usually in the Bible, the term Gentiles refers to anyone who's not a Jew, right? It's an ethnic designation. But in this context, the term simply refers to those who are far from God and who don't have a biblical view of God and who are essentially pagan in their spiritual orientation. And as Jesus alludes to here, uh, prayer in the pagan world was often characterized by mindless repetition and various magical incantations in which saying the right words and and saying them often and, and as much as possible was what really mattered. Like it was uh, all very mechanical rather than something that was from the heart. It was more about saying prayers than about truly 
right. Yet Jesus informs us that we don't have to do that with God. Instead, he says that God is a father who knows what we need and presumably cares about what we need before we even ask him. Like he's not some pagan deity who demands that we mindlessly repeat a certain formula over and over again before he'll answer our prayers. Instead, he's a father who loves us and cares for us and who already holds our needs in his heart before we even mention them in our prayers. Yet looking again at verse 9, Notice that God isn't just described as our Father, but as our Father in heaven. And those twin truths have a wonderful way of balancing each other out. Whereas viewing God as our Father conveys just warm intimacy and love and care that he has for us, understanding that he's in heaven reminds us that he's also the all-powerful Lord of the universe. So he's not some teddy bear who might have a big heart but no power to actually do anything. No, he's the one who sovereignly rules over all things from the throne of heaven. And yet, amazingly, is also lovingly attentive to our prayers. So that's how we should approach God, as our Father in heaven. It reminds me of that famous picture of uh, JFK Jr. playing under his father's desk in the Oval Office. And of course, his dad was the President of the United States and therefore, arguably, the most powerful and influential person in the whole world. And so, I imagine that whenever most people entered the Oval Office, they were pretty guarded and formal, and perhaps even a bit anxious as they interacted with the powerful man behind that desk. Yet that's not the attitude that we see in JFK Jr., is it? No. There's no fear or anxiety because the president is his dad. And that's similar to the manner in which we get to approach God. Although we certainly revere him as the Lord of the universe, we don't have to be afraid of him or anxious as we approach him. Instead, those of us who are Christians can come before him as our Father and enjoy unprecedented access to him whenever we desire. And by the way, that privileged relationship isn't something we should take for granted. Because if it weren't for what Jesus has done for us in the gospel, we wouldn't have that kind of relationship with God or anything close to it. You see, in our natural condition, we're not God's children, but rather God's enemies because of our sin. The Bible says that each one of us has sinned against God. Romans 3, 10 through 12 states that no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. As a result, the Bible says that God will give us what our sins deserve. 
in hell for all eternity. That's what justice demands. You know, for God to withhold that punishment would be a gross miscarriage of justice. However, the good news of the gospel is that in his love, God's provided a way for his justice to be satisfied while at the same time sparing us from the judgment that we deserve. And that way was through Jesus. Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfectly sinless life, and then died on the cross to atone, to pay for our sins. As Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus suffered in our place, satisfying God's justice and rescuing us from all that we deserved. He then resurrected from the dead three days later in order to to demonstrate his victory over sin and death. And because of what Jesus has done in the gospel, there are several blessings that we enjoy as we put our trust in him, our full confidence in him. Perhaps the most well-known of those blessings is what the Bible calls justification, which is a fancy way of saying that God forgives us of our sins and declares us to be righteous in his sight. As Romans 5.1 tells us, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we put our faith in Jesus, we are justified. By that faith. We go from being condemned in our sins to being holy and blameless before God. So that's one gospel blessing, the blessing of justification. And there are several other gospel blessings as well that we could talk about, such as regeneration, where God changes us from the inside out, removing our old sinful heart and replacing it with a heart that loves him. We we also experience sanctification, where God progressively transforms us to be more like him in the way that we live. So as you can see, the blessings that come to us from the gospel are absolutely stunning. Yet as amazing as all of these gospel blessings are, there's one blessing that I believe is even more Amazing. And that is the blessing of adoption. We learn about it in numerous places, among them Galatians 4 5, where Paul writes that Jesus redeemed us from our sins, quote, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And I truly believe that adoption is the highest of all the blessings that we receive in the gospel. Now, to clarify, I do believe that justification is the most foundational blessing since it meets our most foundational need. Apart from Christ, we stand condemned and in desperate need of rescue. 
That's the most foundational need we have. So justification is the foundational blessing because it meets that need. However, that's not to say justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. I mean, it's wonderful to be declared right before God. But to be loved by God and adopted by God as his own child is even more wonderful. There's no higher privilege than to be a part of God's family. It's the highest blessing we receive. And think about the fact that God didn't have to adopt us. Now, in reality, God didn't have to justify us either. He could have left us in our sins and allowed us to experience the condemnation we deserved. I mean, yet he didn't. He chose to send his son Jesus to rescue us so that we could be justified. But God also could have stopped with our justification. That would mean we would be forgiven of our sins and enjoy God's goodness to some degree in heaven. And I'm sure we could all agree that that in itself is an unimaginably wonderful blessing. And yet God hasn't even stopped there. He's actually gone beyond even that and adopted us into his family as his own beloved children. That's just off the charts. What higher blessing could there be? It's hard not to agree with J.I. Packer when he writes that if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So I just feel like I have to ask before we go any further, have you ever experienced this? Have you ever turned away from your sins, put your trust in Jesus to rescue you, and then entered into a personal relationship with God as your father, so that you know him and enjoy him as a child would their father. And if not, why not do so? Even today. Why not let today be the day that you became a child of God? You may not have tomorrow. Also, for those who are already Christians, the more we understand of the wonders of this truth of our adoption, the more of a difference it makes in our prayers. Understanding the rich dynamics of our adoption, it changes everything about the way we approach God in prayer. So let's dig a little deeper. Shall we? We've already seen in Matthew 6, 9 that we should approach God as our Father. But what exactly does it mean for God to be our Father? What's his disposition toward us 
specifically as it relates to prayer. Well, let me direct your attention, actually, to the passage of Scripture we looked at last week, because there are still some precious truths in this passage that I didn't bring out last week, because I was intentionally saving them for this week. In Matthew 7, 7 through 11, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So in these verses, we find a description of the kind of father God is. He's a loving father who delights in giving good gifts to his children. So combining what we saw earlier from Matthew 6 with these verses from Matthew 7, here's what we find emerging into full view. Uh, This is the main idea I would like to get across this morning. Jesus teaches us to approach God in prayer as a loving father who delights in giving good gifts to his children. Again, Jesus teaches us to approach God in prayer as a loving father who delights in giving good gifts to his children. And that is absolutely revolutionary. God isn't some distant deity who's reluctant to answer our prayer or annoyed by our constant asking. No, he wants us to ask and delights in showering us with innumerable blessings in response to our asking. As we just read in Matthew 7, 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In other words, if those of us who are parents, even with all of our sinfulness and shortcomings, enjoy giving good gifts to our kids, how much more? Well, our Father in heaven, or does our Father in heaven delight in giving us good gifts? How much more does his heart go out to us whenever we come to him in prayer? So let me encourage you to approach God in prayer in the same manner that children approach their parents. And there are two characteristics of little children in particular that I'd like to highlight. First, children come without pretense in asking their parents for things. Now, they haven't really learned yet how to you know, put on a mask or a facade and making their desires known. Instead, they simply come as who they are. And that's the way we should approach God in prayer. Approach God as the real you. I remember in the church I attended growing up, uh, the ushers would um, come to the, the front of the auditorium uh, every Sunday during the worship service, and one of them would say a prayer before they passed around the offering plates to the congregation. 
And regardless of which one of them was praying on any given Sunday, the prayers would almost always sound more or less the same. Uh, the guy's voice would get like really low and dignified and you know, they'd always make sure to use plenty of holy language in their prayers, like a bunch of these and thous and, you know, words like that. And even as a teenager, I remember thinking, like, like why are you speaking that way? <laughs> That's not the way you talk in regular conversation. So, you know, why do you feel like you have to, to do that in your prayers? And yet that's just a more obvious example of the same kind of thing that many of us also do in prayer. You know, even if we don't revert to King James English, we still often feel like we have to put on some sort of a facade as we approach God. So don't do that, right? Don't try to be something you're not. You don't feel like you have to, to act like you have it all together when, in fact, none of us have it all together. You know, many of us are familiar with the teaching that someone who isn't a Christian shouldn't try to fix themselves up or get their life straightened out before coming to Jesus. That's hopeless. Instead, they have to first come to Jesus as they are, in their sins, in their brokenness, and allow Jesus to do the fixing. That's basic gospel teaching, right? And yet, how often do we forget that when it comes to prayer? Like, how often do we try to approach God in prayer as something other than the real us with all of our sins and struggles? And so, essentially, all I'm saying is that we should apply the gospel to our prayer lives. Approach God without pretense, just as children approach their parents. In addition, uh, children approach their parents without any hesitation about asking for what they really want. Uh, children will ask for just about anything that comes to their minds, won't they? I mean, if they hear about a new toy, they don't hesitate to ask for that new toy. You know, if they hear about Disney World, they don't have a problem asking to go to Disney World that very week. Um, for example, every once in a while, I'll try to take my, uh, my five-year-old daughter, Grace, out for uh, what we call a daddy-daughter date, and we usually go out to a local ice cream shop that's sort of a 1960s-themed shop, and, and we, we just enjoy that time together. So that's what we did a few weeks ago. Um, I took her out there, and, and uh, we had a great time on our daddy-daughter date. But guess what? Uh, she asked me just a couple of days after we had that date. She said, you know, Daddy, isn't it time for another daddy-daughter day? Just like within 48 hours. She had no hesitation about asking for what she really wanted. And that's how God invites us to come to him in prayer. He invites us to pray as children who aren't afraid to ask for what's truly in our hearts. God isn't reluctant to hear. So we shouldn't be reluctant to ask. And the thing about it is that God actually enjoys being asked. He even enjoys being asked repeatedly. And that's a lot different from the way those of us who are parents are with our kids, right? 
I mean, whenever our kids ask us for something over and over again, I mean, it wears us out. You know, sometimes we, you'll give them what they ask for just to you know, shut them up. And it's just wearisome. They're, they're relentless asking. However, in passages like Luke 18, 1 through 8, for example, God actually encourages us to ask him for things repeatedly. He invites us to ask and then to ask again and again and again because he simply enjoys being asked. I love the way C.S. Lewis brings this out in his uh, fictional book, The Magician's Nephew, in the Chronicles of Narnia series. The great lion, Aslan, who represents Jesus, sends these children named Diggory and Polly out on a mission. But as they journey on their mission, they find themselves hungry and without food as they set up camp for the night. And so they talk about their need for food with the horse. That's with them, like I said, fictional book. And uh, they, they wonder why Aslan has allowed them to be in this situation without enough food. Uh, Polly asked the horse, wouldn't Aslan know about our need for food without being asked? And the horse responds very insightfully. I've no doubt he would, but I've a sort of an idea he likes to be asked. You know, sometimes people wonder, why should we pray if God already knows what we need anyway? Well, this is the reason. He simply enjoys being asked. And I'm convinced a big part of the reason he enjoys being asked is that us asking him for things leads us out of our state of self-sufficiency and into a state of humble dependence on him. Simultaneously, our asking also gives God occasion to display his power and love more clearly in our lives and thereby accomplish his ultimate purpose of bringing glory to his name. John Piper explains it this way. He writes, Suppose you are totally paralyzed and can do nothing for yourself but talk. And suppose a strong and reliable friend promised to live with you and do whatever you needed done. How could you glorify your friend if a stranger came to see you? Would you glorify his generosity and strength by trying to get out of bed and carry him? No, you would say, friend, please come lift me up. And would you put a pillow behind me so I can look at my guest? And would you please put my glasses on for me? And so your visitor would learn from your request that you are helpless and that your friend is strong and kind. You glorify your friend by needing him and asking him for help and counting on him. Piper then makes the connection to prayer. He writes, prayer is the open admission that without Christ, we can do nothing. And prayer is the turning away from ourselves to God in the confidence that he will provide the help we need. Prayer humbles us as needy 
and exalts God as wealthy. So God invites us to ask him for whatever's on our heart in our prayers, just as children so often do with their parents. Yet at the same time, it's true that those of us who are parents hope that our children will desire more in their relationship with us than just what we can buy for them and do for them, right? Especially as our children mature, we hope that they maintain a relationship with us simply because they love us and because they genuinely enjoy being around us and, and want us in their lives. And that's what God desires as well. It's true that God's a father who, as we've said, delights in giving good gifts to his children. But the best gift that he offers us and wants us to desire above all is the gift of himself. The best gift God offers is the gift of himself. So our primary motive in prayer shouldn't be getting things from God, but rather getting God. Treating God not as a means to an end, but as the end itself. As one theologian has said, God is his own reward. So don't hesitate to ask God for what's truly on your heart, yet at the same time, Make sure you're not exalting the gifts above the giver. The more you grow as a Christian, the more you should find yourself desiring God in your prayers. As the Holy Spirit progressively shapes your desires and affections to a greater and greater degree, the more you should find yourself yearning for God and, and pursuing a deeper relationship with God through prayer. So ideally, prayer should be the natural expression of a heart that yearns for God. It shouldn't merely be the spiritual equivalent of a trip to the vending machine to get this, that, or the other. And it certainly shouldn't be something we approach as a legalistic duty, just to check it off the list. You know, church attendance, check. Bible study, check. Praying, check. No, prayer should be something we engage in ultimately because we desire more of God himself. Just as we eat because we're hungry and breathe because we crave oxygen, we should pray because we yearn for more of God. 